Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry's not here, but all of these beautiful people are at the Castro Theater in San Francisco, California. Love it. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> Got a chucker sign out there. I think I know who that is. It's pretty great. It's a good sign. It is. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> oh, we're definitely not cussing. <clears throat> so uh, we've asked you all here tonight. <clears throat> To talk about being a child of the, uh, are those for us? Thank you very much. Oh, wow. Okay, uh, let's just start over. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she was just like, no, I'm just going to put my stuff up here. <laughs> so um, if Ch- Chuck and I are children of the 70s and 80s. He was born in the very, very, very early 70s. I was born in the mid-70s. And, um, I mean, it might as well have been the 60s. <laughs> Basically. I mean, you were right there on the cusp. Um, and being children of this era, we were aware of certain things, like all kids of the 70s and 80s were. Um, like that vans could have carpeting on the wall. It's you true. Know? Um, every kid knew the precise amount of McDonald's orange drink that he or she could drink just before getting a crippling stomachache. <laughs> That's like 70s, 80s kid knowledge. Um, Or that your parents um, like to go to swinger parties where there were keys and fish bowls and weird stuff like that. And did your parents not do that? (laughs) And every kid of the 70s and 80s knew that somewhere out there, there was a gorilla named Coco who could talk. And if you've never heard of Coco, prepare to buckle up and have your mind blown because that is what we're talking about tonight. Coco the Talking Gorilla, who is a local here, as I'm sure you guys know. This is actually a super local show. It is. Yeah. Because Coco the Gorilla was born uh, 4th of July, just like Geraldo Rivera and Malia Obama. And a bunch of other people I haven't heard of when I looked it up online. <laughs> My dad was born on the 4th of July. Really? Yes. Why didn't you say that the other night? I, I it just didn't feel like it. All right. <laughs> I th- Tom Cruise was, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was the, for the movie. Oh, okay. he had, That he had been born for that movie. He's just so good. I, I bought it. <laughs> yeah. He really sold it. Uh, Coco was born on the 4th of July, 1971, uh, just four months after yours truly was born. There'd be a lot of mirroring here between my development and Coco's. <laughs> Coco was born at the San Francisco Zoo. Yeah. 6.1 miles from here. And what was uh, Coco's birth name in full? Uh, Hanabiko. So Coco is actually your nickname, and Hanabiko in Japanese means fireworks child. She was named that after the fireworks really? going off. You think that's cute? On the 4th of July. Just wait. <laughs> yeah, if that's got you awing already, man, you guys yeah. are going to love this one. So uh, Coco was a western lowland gorilla, mm-hmm. uh, which was a, and still is, a critically endangered subspecies of gorilla in uh, central 
West Africa. And Coco was born into a world in the 1970s uh, here in the United States, especially where people thought two things about gorillas. Uh, They thought they were super scary because literally because of King Kong, the movies, (laughs) kind of like Jaws with sharks. Right. They, two very huggable animals. <laughs> Movies ruined it, <laughs> basically. And uh, they thought gorillas were scary, and they thought gorillas were really dumb. Like, duh, um, dumb. Like, like even you, among apes, right. they thought gorillas were dumb. Exactly. Um, and so this is the world that Coco was born into. And when she was born at the San Francisco Zoo, um, she had kind of a difficult infancy. Her mom wasn't producing enough milk to sustain her. And then when she was, I think, six months old, she uh, caught dysentery. She developed dysentery and was basically at death's door and had to be removed from her family unit so that she could be nursed back to health by humans who took care of her around the clock, which is great. Sure. Because they actually did save her life. But they had a problem after she recovered, and that was that she had spent so much time away from her family unit and hanging out with humans instead that they were worried that her family unit would reject her if they took her back. So now they kind of had a problem on their hands. They had a gorilla. Yeah. (laughs) The gorilla in the room. So... uh, (laughs) That was a great movie. It was fantastic. So there was a Stanford grad student around this time... Bad joke. Jerry, cut that one out. Already. Already. I've only got three of those for the whole show, so. You guys keep score. (laughs) There was a Stanford grad student around this time that came on the scene, a 24-year-old young woman named Francine Penny Patterson. Uh, She entered Coco's life at this moment when Coco needed her most, and she said, you know what? Uh, I'm studying apes, and I think that I can teach gorillas how to speak using sign language. You've got a gorilla. I need my PhD. This is all kind of perfect. That's a a verbatim quote from that moment. (laughs) So she took control of Coco's care, and for the next 40-something years, uh, they had a relationship that can really only be described as uh, human mother and gorilla daughter. Very much so, Yeah. yeah, for sure. And so the whole point of trying to teach Coco or any gorilla sign language was um, to find out how or if a gorilla could acquire language and then compare how a gorilla acquires language to how kids, human kids acquire language. And then we can kind of compare and contrast the differences and kind of trace back humans' evolutionary history for how we developed language because it's still a mystery. We don't really know why. We just know we seem to be the only species capable of using language. That's right. Plus, it's a good party (laughs) trick. (laughs) Right. And it was the 70s. Yeah. (laughs) So at first, Coco and Penny were working together at the San Francisco Zoo, but it's a zoo, and there were people that were, you know, paying money to get in there and gawk at them. A lot of slack-jawed yokels. A lot of slack-jawed yokels. (laughs) At the San Francisco Zoo. And, uh... Look, Ma. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What was my favorite line? Oh, never mind. I can't get off track this early. We'll save The Simpsons for later. Okay. So uh, people were gawking, and that's very distracting to a young gorilla. So she said, you know what? This is going pretty well, but I think I could do a lot better with my research. And for Coco's benefit, if we moved uh, Coco to Stanford. And they basically said, sure, you can, um, you can take Coco on loan and go do some serious research at Stanford University. Right, right. Where there's a lot more dope to be smoked than at the San Francisco Zoo, you know what I mean? I'm sure we've got some Stanford grads here. So, uh, yeah. Oh, really? Really? That's surprising. Go Cardinals. 
<laughs> I thought it was giant trees. Is there? <laughs> yeah, it was a little clunky. So okay. Um, so uh, so uh, they moved to Stanford. Officially launched Project Coco, and Coco suddenly is surrounded by a bunch of interesting people who are giving her their undivided attention. And she's raised in kind of this way that's similar to how you would raise a human child in like an ideal homeschool setting, where like everything is about her and teaching her stuff and playing with her and keeping her attention going. And she really started to kind of thrive in this this environment. And she started to pick up sign language pretty quick. In her first two weeks of being uh, taught sign, a, an adapted form of American sign language, <clears throat> she knew food, drink, and more. And really, the last one's the most important one. But she picked up these signs within two weeks. And again, remember, bear this in mind this whole time. Anytime we say something amazing about Coco, imagine that at the time when she's doing this stuff, she's the first gorilla doing this stuff and just amazing the world because we thought gorillas were scary, stupid. Just bear it in mind. <laughs> Stun silence was not what I was going for, but I'll take it. I'll take it. Whatever I can get from you guys. So uh, things were going well at Stanford, but she said, you know what, this is great, but I think we even need more space than they have at Stanford for a gorilla. And so she founded the Gorilla Foundation and moved Coco and Project Coco to a six-acre private facility that uh, basically had a mobile home for Coco to live in, and mm -hmm. that's where Coco lived her life. They retrofitted it, so you know they had to make the walls a little stronger over the years as Coco grew, and they made it so a gorilla could live in this trailer. Sure. And she loved it. It was her house. She made her yeah. little nest out of blankets every night and had a tire to sit in and had like all sorts of toys to play and TV to watch. Had a lot more than I had. For sure. <laughs> Although you did have to make a nest of blankets every night in your house too. That's true. And to or, be fair, or had you let that man touch your beard, that would have been your future, I think. <laughs> That's true. Coco was learning faster than I was anyway, so... <laughs> Yeah, but you had that innate, like, don't let him do it. Don't let him do it. <laughs> so uh, Coco was taught uh, sign language using a couple of different techniques. Uh, There's one called the molding technique, where they would literally take Coco's hand and shape her hand in the shape of the sign and do the sign while they're either saying the word or showing a picture of the object or whatever, or both. Um, I know you have an example that you're pretty good at. <laughs> I do. Uh, cat, the sign for cat, is where you like kind of demonstrate whiskers. You draw whiskers across your face. So you would take, you'd take Coco's hand and squish these together. Get these two, right? There you go. And then just be like, cat, cat. You're like the guy in the Sky Lounge all of a sudden. <laughs> right. <laughs> so creepy. Right. But that was, so that was the molding technique. The other one, imitation, is way simpler. It's just, you know, you would show her, cat, cat. <laughs> Cat. And she would eventually be like, and you go, yes, cat. 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 Stop. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so annoying. That's what Coco would have said, too. <laughs> I got, like, it. I got it. I got it. Okay. Just stop. So, within Coco's first four and a half years, she went through a couple of big uh, language growth spurts. Uh, she added about 200 new words to her vocabulary each year. Again, way faster than I was. Uh, and she was developing language basically at about the rate of um, 
a child eight months behind Coco, a human child. Right. But she was acquiring signs at about the same rate as a deaf child her age, which is pretty astounding, especially considering she wasn't taught sign language until she was one, and she wasn't exposed to English until she was about six months old. So she kind of started from behind and started as a gorilla, but she was still picking <laughs> up language at about the same pace as human children, and this was just knocking everybody's socks off. It's amazing. So Coco, I think, uh, had a working vocabulary by the time she was an adult of about... 600 signs, and then uh, spontaneously used another 400. Mm -hmm. So that's 1,000 signs, and then could apparently understand about 200, I'm sorry, 2,000 words of English. Right. So she could understand 2,000 words, she could sign about 1,000, and in the middle of sort of this uh, early period is where uh, Penny Patterson became Dr. Penny Patterson. Yeah, she got her uh, PhD from Stanford in I think 79 or something like that, and Project Coco continued, right? Um, and one of the things that Coco taught the world is that not only could she understand sign language and use signs, she could actually use this to do things that we thought only humans could do, like joke around. Like there's this really good example of her making a joke. It's a gorilla level joke, but it's a joke nonetheless. It still qualifies. You want to tell them? It's sort of a Josh and Chuck level joke. Sure. So uh, they would go in with a white towel and try and get Coco to sign uh, white. And Coco kept signing red, red, red. And they were like, no, Coco. <laughs> what color is the towel? Red, red, red. No, Coco. What color is the towel? <laughs> I'm just kidding. They were very kind. And Coco uh, eventually went over and picked a red piece of lint off the towel and held it up and said, red, red, red. <laughs> and laughed and laughed and laughed. Yeah. And everyone just, it was pretty much... The best joke of all time. Well, it definitely <laughs> qualifies as a joke. We did not know that gorillas were capable of joking. Not um, bad. She also knew how to lie. That's actually kind of sophisticated. As wrong as it is, it's kind of sophisticated intellectually. We didn't realize gorillas I'm not going to make any Trump jokes lie. at all. <laughs> about the human sophistication it takes to lie. It just kind of constantly. It, it writes itself. All right. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get political. So there was, a, there was a time when Coco broke the kitchen sink in her, in her little kitchen. And later on, Penny asked her what happened. And Coco said, Kate did it. Which is the first lie children tell, literally, is Kate did mm -hmm. it. Yeah, Kate, it's always Kate's fault. <laughs> right. But she, like, threw her caregiver under the bus, which is very human, if you think about it, you know? She was like, Kate did it. You should fire her. <laughs> Uh, she was also pretty good at, at making up, at improv, basically, at making up signs for things that she didn't know the signs for. Uh, for instance, a mask was an eye hat. Mm -hmm. It's not bad. Yeah, yeah. it's fairly cute. Uh, a zebra she called a white tiger, because she didn't know the sign for zebra. Not bad. Boy, they're going to lose their minds. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. When you know what enters the picture. Uh, a ring was a finger bracelet. That's pretty good. And a Pinocchio doll was an elephant baby. <laughs> this is a gorilla, everybody. Not bad. Not bad at all. She also had... Uh, are you asking me, yeah. literally, if yeah. you should say that? Yeah. I think you should. Okay. Why don't you tell everyone about Coco's insults? <laughs> so, so prepare to awe some more. 
Um, she had her own little vocabulary of insults like bird and nut. Like, you're a bird, you're a nut. That was her insults. Um, it got even better. Rotten stink. It's also Dirt. a good punk band name. It is pretty good. Dirty toilet. <laughs> toilet dirty devil. <laughs> and um, f***ing f***ing face motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, that was the one. I'm sorry. I, I apologize before. I'll just I'll apologize now, as well. <laughs> I, that's gonna sound so sweet beeped out when we end up releasing this episode. Please come back. I said I was sorry. <laughs> 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 and I love in the middle of it, you look over at me and point to FFFF and you go. I, wa I, I wanted you to be on the hook as well I as know. me. All right, that's it. That's all the dirty language. <laughs> it, was, it was worth it. That's a good quality joke. <laughs> you get, because see, Coco didn't really say that. That was Josh. <laughs> So here's the deal, though. We've, we've talked so far about Coco uh, insulting people and making jokes and throwing people under the bus, but that was not Coco's nature. Coco no. was actually a very sweet gorilla, yeah. and everyone who came into Coco, uh, especially Dr. Patterson, loved, loved, loved this gorilla. Yes. Um, and so in 1976, this gorilla foundation expanded. The little family grew a little bigger when they brought in a gorilla male named Michael. And um, Michael, which Michael. is a weird, it's a weird name for a gorilla. <laughs> it's kind of like, have you ever seen somebody, uh, where you meet someone's dog and they're like, this is James or Alan <laughs> or something like that. Like you can use a human name for a dog, but it's got to be just slightly yeah. off. Yeah, I'm trying to think Harvey of the most like, Norncore um, name you could give a dog. I, Alan is pretty close. Alan, sure. James. Edward's, Edward's not Larry, he's pretty good. <laughs> Larry, but no, if it was like a, a big sloppy bulldog named Larry, you'd be like, of course, Larry. James, though? Who would name a dog James? Anyway, Jennifer. Jennifer's a pretty good name for a dog. <laughs> right? Yeah. Nah, Chuck's... It's a, good, it's a good dog name, too. Chuck is on the cusp of being goofy anyway. Right. All right, that's enough, yeah, everybody. Stop shouting at the stage. We didn't ask for this. <laughs> Anyway, Michael comes into the picture. Michael the gorilla. <laughs> Michael. And he also learned American Sign Language, too, and he picked it up pretty well. Not quite as, as well as Coco, but still very well. Um, he was also enculturated, which means that he was raised basically as a human um, and, and not as a gorilla, which means that he liked to listen to Pavarotti and paint very seriously. They both painted, actually, but Michael took it very seriously. But one of the big findings from uh, Project Coco is that they found that Michael and Coco would sign to one another, unprompted. They would just communicate through sign, and that each one taught the other signs that the humans hadn't taught them, right? So Michael learned some stuff from humans that Coco hadn't, and he went and taught Coco and vice versa, which is pretty big. Yeah, it's big, it's cute, and a little creepy. <laughs> Especially if they develop their own sign language that yeah, the humans don't know. Exist. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. You got the chloroform. Oh, we should also mention there's there's if you've seen the documentary, there's one on Netflix called Coco. I think the gorilla who could talk. 
It might be that on the nose. There's a colon in there somewhere. From, yeah, from the BBC. Uh, and there's a man in that documentary you see a lot. His name is Ron Cohn. He came on the project very early on to document all this via camera mm-hmm. and uh, videotape and stuck around through the whole project because he was clearly in love with Penny Patterson. <laughs> that was the whole subtext of that documentary. The whole time I was like, he even says at the very beginning, he was like, I thought she was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah. I was like, oh, Ron. I really feel bad for the... Feel bad for him. Yeah. It adds an extra kind of like uh, subplot to the documentary. It totally though, was, but Ron wasn't a gorilla, so he had no shot. <laughs> he would even dress up like one sometimes. And <laughs> it just didn't work. Didn't take. So uh, <laughs> word got around, as it does, uh, in around Woodside, California, where this uh, gorilla foundation was, that there was a gorilla in their midst. <laughs> that was terrible. All right. <laughs> I would ask all of you not to encourage him. And by the way, this is just neither here nor there, but today uh, where Coco lived is just a two-minute drive from a Ross Dress for Less. This is one of Josh's, when, you, when Josh puts together these, uh, these things, you get these interesting little factoids like that. <laughs> it's like two minutes away. There's a couple of them in every single one. I like, love it. Do the it. people who are sitting there like smelling soap like realize that two minutes away there's a gorilla foundation where there's sign language using gorillas? Probably not. I don't think so. Probably not. Uh, and by 1978, uh, the world was introduced to Coco in a big way when Coco made her first appearance of what would be two on the cover of National Geographic magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you've seen this very famous photo, uh, what you see is a, is a gorilla holding a camera. And you think, oh, that's cute. And when you look closely, you realize that uh, the Olympus camera is backwards, and Coco had taken her own picture in a mirror and was the photographer of note for National Geographic. Yeah, magazine. and it's like it's a well-framed photograph. She's it's using it correctly. And yeah, it ended up on the cover. The first Pretty gorilla amazing. selfie. Yeah. It was, sure. Sure. I, I was trying to word. avoid using that word, but yes, that's what it was. The second cover, though, so that introduced the world to, to Coco. Inside, there was like a pretty substantial article written by Penny, basically describing Project Coco and how it was going. And everybody's like, wow, this is amazing. But in 1985, seven years later, she was on the cover again. And this time, the world just fell in love with Coco because in the cover photo, uh, Coco is cradling her kitten. Her kitten, not a kitten, Coco's kitten. Because Coco had a kitten, and that is what this whole, uh, this whole issue was about. Yeah, it was, uh, it's super cute. I mean, I think we can all agree that interspecies mingling is kind of like the best thing on the internet. Very cute. <laughs> I could look at that stuff all day. I do sometimes. <laughs> and then I just sit around and it's like, there's a parrot with an alligator. Isn't that adorable? <laughs> they love each other. They love each other. You can't do it with reptiles. No, not easily. It's never cute. No. I have seen some cute reptile stuff, but it's few and far between. Like a snake cuddling a turtle? That's no cuddle. <laughs> oh. 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 Sorry to break it to you. <laughs> huh. Got to rethink the stuff I look at on the internet. So Coco, uh, maybe because Coco had been taught the word cat um, incessantly. Cat. Loved, <laughs> loved cats and wanted a kitten. And uh, for, for one, uh, I think it was birthday or Christmas one year, they gave Coco a very realistic a stuffy kitten, and that didn't work because Coco's no dummy. 
And they're like, all right, I guess we got to go for it and do yeah. the real thing. Yeah. So they brought in a litter of kittens and had Coco pick one out. Um, she smashed all but one, and that was the lucky kitten. <laughs> That's not true. Not true. It's not true. <laughs> no, she picked out a little, uh, a little tabby Manx. Uh, Manxes don't have, or Manx I don't have tails. My brother's got a Manx, of course, because he's my brother. Uh, and so Manx didn't have a tail, and so Coco named this little ball of fluff All Ball. Isn't that cute? That was the name of Coco's kitten. And Allball himself was a pretty interesting cat. Um, he had been abandoned, his whole litter had been, uh, by his mother, and so he was nursed by a dog for like four and a half weeks. Not only just a dog, a Cairn Terrier, which is the same breed as Toto from The Wizard of Oz, and then he went on to become the pet cat of a talking gorilla. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Pretty, pretty wild like, ride. What is going on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trigger warning, everybody. All ball died. All ball got out and was hit by car and killed. I know. I'm sorry to have to tell you that. Yeah. But that's what happened. Uh, All ball got out, got smashed by a car, and Penny. <laughs> told Coco this. We didn't hit him with our car. I know. Why are you I guess turning I didn't on need us to say the same thing sudden. twice, probably. Yeah, yeah. In a more like graphic really way. really just ground him in there. Oh. You changed your name to All Tire. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I said that. I love cats. I have two cats. That was way worse than what That's I said awful. earlier. Way worse. Oh, I was God. not on the hook with I'm that a one. Garbage podcaster. Mm. Garbage human, frankly. So sorry. I think I, Emily I just got up and left. Frank. Yeah. She's sobbing. <laughs> so uh, Penny had to break it to Coco, obviously, because this was Coco's best little buddy. And Coco, it's mm-hmm. awful. Uh, for about 10 minutes, she just turned her back. And like a child would, ignored everything. Like, you know, I didn't hear that, basically. And then later on, Coco uh, started whimpering and making uh, these sad uh, gorilla, uh, depressed gorilla sounds. And I can't even say this next part. You've got to. Then eventually she signed Sleep Cat. <laughs> I know. And I think I'm this so is... so sorry. This is a great place to put an ad, if you ask me. <laughs> so... So if you guys will bear with us, we're going to take a message break. everybody <laughs> you've seen this before you, guys you know like how that this. works it's like a roller coaster of emotions so I don't know if you remember where we were all ball has just been <laughs> killed um, you should not feel too bad though because Coco had two more sets of kittens throughout her uh, long life uh, lipstick and smoky and miss black and miss gray <laughs> 
So Coco loved her kittens. She did. And I don't know what happened to the rest of them. Don't ask, <laughs> is what I say. <laughs> um, so Coco had become a celebrity, and being a celebrity, other celebrities wanted to be around her. Uh, not the least of which was William Shatner, who was among the first to go visit Coco. Apparently, he wrote about it in his autobiography that it was kind of a publicity stunt, and he was scared <laughs> to death about going to meet this gorilla like one-on-one, -on -one, but he was determined he was going to do it, and then Coco touched his genitals during their meeting. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Just cupped his little Shatners. <laughs> <laughs> Get over here. <laughs> oh, it's painful. <laughs> She's touching my balls. <laughs> that was... I don't even know how to do that. <laughs> no. I worked with Shatner on a, uh, on a Cheerios commercial. I worked with Shatner. Yeah? He, what? Someone just yelled out a bad name about him. He was nice the day I worked with him. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a Star Trek guy, but he was, he was a nice guy. All right, ma'am. You need to quit calling me names. So uh, Fred Rogers, uh, Mr. Rogers, also paid a little visit, yep. right? Yeah, and uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the Mr. Rogers documentary, but this is in that documentary. And if you look closely, Mr. Rogers looks kind of scared too. But he's, he's like, no, I'm going through with this. But he's just a little, like, over-eager to take, you know, direction from Penny Patterson. <laughs> he's just a little nervous, um, especially when Coco cradles him like a baby, <laughs> which she did. It's very cute. And it gets even better because Coco and Michael were both big fans of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So when he showed up, they freaked out because there's Mr. Rogers, <laughs> and Coco took his shoes off like she'd seen him do so many times before. Man, it's better and better. <laughs> yes, I'm serious. <laughs> so uh, Coco also got visits on separate occasions, I think, from both Flea and Sting. I don't think they came together, right? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, they've been doing a little lunch, did a little shopping at Ross Dress for Less, and then made their way over to the Gorilla Foundation. Maybe so. <laughs> Sting's like, why are you always just buying tidy whities <laughs> and tube socks <laughs> little red hot chili peppers humor got it a little dated it still works alright uh, they both let them uh, let Coco um, play their basses they both brought their basses and let Coco slap at a bass yeah Peter Gabriel showed up yeah as he does at situations like this um America's beloved treasure, Betty White, went and visited. Uh, and Betty White was a board member of the Gorilla Foundation. So if you didn't love her enough before, love her even more now. That's true. And um, Coco was a fan of the Golden Girls, so they were fans of one another. Of course. Uh, Leo DiCaprio paid a visit. He heard there was a young lady that uh, <laughs> he should meet. And all of this is in the documentary, all these various visits. And in Leo's, he's, he's, he didn't even get in the cage, no. at least from this. Like, Coco has her hand through there, and he's just kind of, like, stroking her finger. Not even with his fingertip, like, with his knuckle. Yeah, with his knuckle. <laughs> I think with an assistant's knuckle, actually. Um, but, of course, the most memorable visit was Robin Williams back in 2001. That's right. Uh, of course, San Francisco's own. Uh, you've probably seen this footage. 
If you haven't, go watch it. Yeah. Because uh, like, if, go watch it right now. We'll wait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if 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 only we had a big screen behind us where we could show this stuff. <laughs> right. How could we? How could we fantastic. ever do it? Yeah. That would require ten percent more effort. <laughs> <laughs> This is not going to happen. We challenge you instead to use your imagination. That's right. <laughs> the world of the mind, everyone. <laughs> so Robin Williams uh, is the perfect person to go visit Coco because Robin Williams was not uh, scared like a Shatner. <laughs> he was not intimidated like a Mr. Rogers. He was not uh, disappointed that it wasn't a human like Leo DiCaprio. Yeah. <laughs> He was Robin Williams, and he gets in there and just wants to play with an ape. On that level, gets down on the floor. They're rolling around. They're tickle fighting. Coco takes off his glasses and puts them on and looks out the window. <laughs> and you can just tell that he is legit having, like, one of the best times of his life. Yeah, he was definitely into it for sure. Um, and later on, he, uh, he, he was telling the story on one of the late night shows. I can't remember which one. And he said that they told him that um, Coco had indicated that she wanted to mate with him. <laughs> and Robin Williams said, it would have made a good story. <laughs> which if, if you let that just kind of sit for a little while, like it's like, what? <laughs> and uh, years later, when Robin Williams passed away, uh, they had to break the news to Coco as well. And Coco signed uh, Woman Crying, mm -hmm. and it was very sad. Which is pretty astounding because Coco met Robin Williams. I mean, she watched his movies and everything, but she met him once, like 13 years before his death. And so for her to be affected by it, that's extraordinarily significant. Um, and because Coco had people like Leo DiCaprio and William Shatner coming to visit, the world watched everything she did, and she became an ambassador for Earth, like just this a natural ambassador because here's a gorilla who can communicate with humans and um, gorillas come from nature. So why not just have her talk for nature? And that's exactly what happened. She became an ambassador for planet Earth, basically. Yeah, it was at a very good time for that too. It was uh, here in America. It was in the early 80s when we were just starting to kind of come around to uh, the green movement a little bit more and Earth Day became a bigger and bigger deal. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of prime time for Coco to step in there. Um, I think Penny Patterson wrote a book called Coco's Kitten. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it ended in, the, in a car crash. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. No. There was um, stuffed Coco gorillas. I believe there still are. And like I said, she and Michael both painted, so they started selling prints of their paintings. And Coco's painting of a bird looks like a bird. It's pretty amazing. I mean, you can't tell what kind of bird it is or anything like that, and you have to squint. And again, use your imagination, but you can say, yes, that is a bird. I can tell. Have you ever held a chimp or anything or been around one? Yeah, I have. I've been, uh, I, I have uh, I've held, I'm not quite sure what kind of um, ape it was, but a little, little sweet one in a dress who was very <laughs> cute. And then... Um, Where was this? Uh, down in Florida. Once. Oh, okay. Everybody just walks around with apes that you can hold in Florida. <laughs> And and then, Florida, uh, of course. And then one time I was in Mexico and I was walking down the street and I passed a courtyard, a gated courtyard, and there was a chimp like on a, a leash that it could swing around the courtyard in. And I was like, well, I have to stop and talk to this chimp. So I did. And the chimp put his hand on my shoulder and squeezed, not painfully, but this chimp was in charge Just of me enough. right then. Yeah. And then stared. 
more deeply into my soul than any other being has before. And I'm just sitting there with yeah. like cartoon sweat jumping off of my head. And finally, I realized he wasn't going to stop this at any point in time. So I just one finger at a time. <laughs> slowly backed away. And then after, you know, 10 minutes later, I was like, I got to go see my chimp friend again. And they had closed the door. Oh. Yeah, that's what I said too. I worked a, uh, another TV commercial with a chimp one time. And uh, it, would, it was a lifelong dream to hold a chimp. I always wanted to. And so I went to the trainer and uh, said, can I hold the chimp? And she was like, of course. And so I, I hold this baby chimp and it wraps its legs around me and arms around me. <laughs> yes. It's wearing a little diaper. Nice. Um, for, you know, for a good reason. I don't think it was just to be cute. I think, you know, didn't want this chimp pooping and peeing on people. Was it wearing a diaper and clothing? Nah, just a diaper. So, okay, so that's all right. As long as it's not like a diaper and a shirt, that's a terrible combination. Just you know a diaper saying? and a yes. t-shirt? Yeah, that's no good. <laughs> that's not a good look. Human, chimp, doesn't matter. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, but then later uh, we were having our production meeting before the job where everyone kind of stands around and walks through what we're going to do for the day. And I was standing there, you guys, and I felt it before I saw it. This chimp walked up and held my hand. <laughs> and I looked down, and this little chimp is looking up at me and just holds my hand. Best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> and I'm married with a human child. Yow. Yow. It's all right. Where? She doesn't listen to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, where are we here? We're, I, I 19, we're in 1998, we my are, friends. We are, right. So, Coco is an ambassador for Earth at a time where we're um, becoming more eco-conscious, coining dorky terms like eco-conscious. <laughs> she's like the ambassador for Earth. Um, you have to remember, though, she didn't necessarily think of herself this way. So, just keep that in mind. Because uh, in 1998... Um, she took part in the first ever interspecies internet chat hosted by America Online. It does not get more 1998 than that. <laughs> Very 1998. Here was the setup, okay? So there was a AOL moderator who was the one working in the chat room. On the phone with Penny, who was at the Gorilla Foundation. And so the AOL moderator would relay questions over the phone to Penny. Penny would ask the question or sign the question to Coco and then tell the moderator the, Coco's response and then the moderator would type it in. And so when this whole setup was explained to Coco, Coco said, nipple. <laughs> Just put a pin in that. <laughs> Nipples will figure in. <laughs> Quite a bit. But, but the point was, she wasn't like, this is the part I was born to play. I can't wait to get more eco-conscious. She was just like nipple. Coco was a gorilla, everybody. Mm -hmm. Got to remember that. So if you look at that transcript from that AOL chat, that means it's 1998 still. Sure. You're not digging up transcripts from AOL chat rooms anymore, unless you're in trouble with the law. <laughs> And if you look at what's going on in this chat and the answers that Coco's giving and then the responses that Penny Patterson is giving, you start to see a little bit of a trend where I guess the nicest way to say it is that Dr. Patterson was being a little liberal with some of these translations on what she thought Coco might be saying. All right. Um, there's this really good example. One was uh, AOL user Mini Kitty 
asked Coco, are you going to have a baby in the future? Is Mini Kitty here, by the way? Anyone? <laughs> that would be astounding. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Got a bunch of Mini Kitty. Sure. Um, so Mini Kitty asked, Coco, are you going to have a baby in the future? And Coco went, and it doesn't make any sense when you're reading the transcript. Coco covered her eyes. And uh, you, when Dr. Patterson kind of translates it, then it makes sense. She said, well, I think what she's doing is signing unattention, that she doesn't see it. It's not going to happen. And you can't help but think, that feels like a bit of a stretch. <laughs> and when you read this transcript, you start to get uh, a kind of clear idea why there are some people out there in the world who think that Project Coco was almost entirely BS. It was almost entirely made up and not true at all. That's right. So that first part of the show was a lot of fun. I think we can all agree. <laughs> Super cute. Uh, we don't like to burst bubbles, but we do what we do, and we have to show the other side of the argument because uh, we get into a section now called the Ape Language Wars, which was a real thing. Um, for some people, they believe that Coco was super smart and communicating and making sentences and using sign language and understood what was happening. Right. But there was a whole other group of scientists who basically ended up thinking that these experiments are uh, BS and that Coco is basically like a bear you train to ride a unicycle in a circus. Sure. That, She's doing this for treats. Yes, or rewards or something like that. Or fall, that, that, that she was trained to use these signs in the same way you could train a dog to slow dance with you or something. That kind of thing. <laughs> it's, it's very, very impressive, but it doesn't require or display human-level intellect. And we should say, like, none of this is proven. And there's a huge division in the field of science over whether the ape language researchers are right or the skeptics are right. And it's actually pretty fascinating. But you have to kind of step back and look at it in this larger context. Because it wasn't just Project Coco that this gets leveled against it. Project Coco was part of a whole other field um, called the, the ape language experiments that really started way back in the 20th century. Yeah, so it was a pretty hot thing for a while. Um, there were a bunch of experiments going on where they would take uh, chimps, mostly chimps, I think Coco was one of the few apes, or a few gorillas. So she was the first. Yeah, the first one for mm -hmm. sure. And they would take chimps and they would raise them as children by themselves, or with uh, siblings, or dress them up in little cute overalls and things, mm -hmm. and try and make them like little humans, uh, a little later hosen maybe, if they were feeling, <laughs> oh, if they were feeling that, froggy. That is a good look. <laughs> a chimp in later hosen? Sure. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, there was one, uh, one of the first ones in the 1940s, it was a psychologist couple. Uh, and as you'll see, most of these are couples that lead these experiments, uh, which is why I still feel so bad for Ron Cohn. Because <laughs> he was like, well, Penny, like everyone else literally is married. <laughs> Except us. <laughs> so Keith and Kathy Hayes, uh, they trained a chimp named Vicky in the 1940s not to sign words, to speak four human language words. Uh, Vicky could say mama, papa, up, and cup. And uh, we figured they really dropped the ball on that fifth word because pup is just staring them in the face. <laughs> she had all the tools there. Right. But they stopped at four. But here's the thing is that uh, Vicky's experiment, even though she learned to speak four human words, was considered a failure. Failure. 
they taught a chimp to speak and it was considered a failure because everybody's like, just four words? <laughs> and the point was, was that, no, we should be able to teach them language. Like the, the theory was that if humans were the only ones who could use language, maybe it was a cultural thing. So if we start raising chimps as humans, they'll pick up language and you'll have a, a language using chimp. But Vicky proved, and some of the other ones proved, that it's just not going to happen. And later on, we figured out that the physiology of the other primates, um, it, it just doesn't allow for speech. So some people were like, well, that's it. Case closed. It's only humans who can use language. Uh, Noam Chomsky, very famously, the, the famous linguist, came out and said, I, I hypothesize that humans have what's called a language acquisition device, like a little seed program in our brain that allows us to start learning language and that only humans have that. Uh, it's a hypothesis, it hasn't been proven still, but he really kind of set the tone for the skeptics who say it's just humans who can use language. But then some people said, you know what, Chomsky, he's a pretty interesting fella, but I, I don't really, I'm not swayed by this. I think that just because an ape can't talk doesn't mean they can't use language. And somebody, I think uh, Alan and Beatrix Gardner, another couple, came upon <laughs> this really novel idea. If you can't teach an ape, an ape to speak, you could teach an ape sign language. And they were definitely onto something because it, it panned out pretty well. Yeah, this was in 1967, and they had a, was it a chimp? Yeah, a chimp. I think it was a chimp named Washoe. Yeah. And I think Washoe was from Washington. If I'm not mistaken, yeah, I think I think she ended up in Washington. Ended up in Washington, yeah. And uh, things went pretty well for a little while, but uh, it yielded a lot of findings when they found out that uh, Luli was a young male that Washo wasn't the real mama of, but Washo just sort of adopted this young chimp as her own. And they found out that Washo was teaching Luli sign language, and they were signing to each other. They were signing to other animals. They would walk up and sign to dogs and stuff like that. <laughs> I guess like, are you with us? <laughs> it's going to go down. <laughs> and we need to know if you're with us. You're and either with us or are, against us. Yeah, There's like, no middle ground. I'm licking my butthole, man. I don't know. Uh... <laughs> it is funny. If you watch footage from some of these experiments, there is often a dog just kind of hanging out like, what <laughs> the hell are you guys doing? Which is why we love dogs so much. Yeah. They don't care. No. They just want scritches and hugs. <laughs> they do. Um, so Project Washo like, just changed everything because now all of a sudden you had a chimp that was using sign language. Uh, like, so yes, like Noam Chomsky seemed like he was going to be wrong. And that kicked off this whole ape language experimentation. It became kind of like the hot research topic in developmental psychology. It was just so hot. Hot. <laughs> well, you can see why, you know. It's, it's cool. It's headline grabbing. You get to work with these apes. That's super cute. It was at a time when Three's Company was the number one show in America. <laughs> it just made sense in a very, a very 70s kind of way. Yeah? Well, I guess, yeah. <laughs> I thought so. There was one, and it wasn't just uh, gorillas and chimps. There was an orangutan named Chantek who excelled at signing and would give directions whenever uh, Chantic was in a car to the local Dairy Queen. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. It's not bad. Uh, there's a very famous project, NIM. Um, do not watch that documentary. Josh, 
tried to get me to, but he said it's a real bummer, man. Bummer is a very good word to describe yeah, it. So I sure. did not see it. I refuse. It's a little sad. But uh, I think this was at Columbia University in the mid-70s, and they threw a little shade at Noam Chomsky, uh, the leader of this project named Herb Terrace, by naming his chimp Nim Chimpsky, <laughs> which is pre-Simpsons. It's so Simpsons. <laughs> it really is. So and, uh, Herb Terrace figures in pretty big in this in this uh, whole thing. He really does, and like just like Washoe and Luli and all of the other ones, um, Nim has started to acquire sign language like pretty quickly and was using a lot of signs. And things were going along as expected. But Herb Terrace, the head of this project, Project Nim, he wasn't he wasn't convinced. He didn't believe that Nim was actually using language. He thought that he just knew some signs. And like at the heart of this is this discussion of like what constitutes language. Um, like if you have a pie, you can point to a pie and say, pie. And everyone will think, can I have some pie? But all you're doing is pointing to an object and saying a word. That's just using a word. Language is like where you take other words and put them together and describe to people how to make a delicious pie. So you can make something that literally doesn't exist yet out of other things. That's the difference between language and words. And what Herb Terrace thought was that Nim was just using words. So he um, did the, uh, the normal thing that you would do and sent Nim back to uh, his place of birth, a very grim ape research farm in Oklahoma, which is a deeply not okay thing to do. No, there should not be ape farms in Oklahoma. Yeah. <laughs> hate, hate to break that to you. Uh, so we got to say that Herb Terrace, he didn't go into this whole thing to as a skeptic to prove everyone wrong. No, he was a star of the field. Yeah, he was a star of the field. He was way into it, and he looked at the science, and he was like, man, you know what? The more I look at this, not only do I think uh, that they're not truly communicating and understanding what they're saying, mm -hmm. he's like, I think these researchers are tipping them off inadvertently. I don't think anyone's trying to cheat it, but inadvertently they're tipping their hand right before they would teach a sign or ask them to say a sign inadvertently. And I don't even think they know, not only do I think they're not talking, I don't even think that they know what food means when they sign food. That they're, they're just that basic. That they're really just mimicking. Yep, they're just imitating people to get that food <clears throat> treat. So, so Herb Terrace, again, he's one of the stars of the ape language research field, says that he changed his mind about his data. He publishes a, a big influential article in 1981, becomes the most vocal critic of his former field. And normally, when a, a scientist changes his mind about his data, it doesn't really amount to much. But this drew a, a really deep, clear line in the sand. What had once been like the hot research topic in developmental psychology was now considered possibly fraudulent, um, anti-science, or at the very least unscientific. And you had to choose one side or the other, like the dogs and the chimps, right, versus humans. You had to choose, were, did you believe that, that ape language research was actually just fraudulent and it was really the humans who were producing the study data because they were seeing what they wanted to see and believing what they wanted to believe? Or did you believe that, no, they're actually onto something and science um, still has plenty left to learn from studying apes? And you had to choose one side or the other and a lot of kind of petty camps broke out along that dividing line. Yeah, and at the center of all this is a word that I have always had a very hard time saying. This is going to be beautiful. So I have broken it down into five parts. <laughs> Anthropomorphism. Oh, you nailed it. 
You nailed it, Chuck. Thank you, everyone. It says here, Anne-Throw-Poe-More. That's so easy. Mm -hmm. And I just left FISM all by itself. You don't... I didn't break that down into two parts. You don't see FISM spelled out very often. There it is in black and white. Yeah. And for your throw, you added the W, like throw. Yeah. Not just T-H-R-O or T-H-R-O-E. Throw. FISM looks too close to fish the band it really does so that's probably why why i'm like (laughs) naturally against it i'm sorry fish fans (laughs) i don't think san franciscans like music like fish or anything (laughs) there's no great music traditions here are there (laughs) journey huey lewis that's basically it from what i understand (laughs) I don't think anything in the 60s Still, it's happened not bad. here at You guys all. should be very proud of yourselves just for having Huey Lewis and Journey. That's right. <laughs> Forget the news, just Huey Lewis alone. Sure. I thought that was implied. And his wiener. You know he showed his wiener in a movie once. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Robert Altman's shortcuts. Huey Lewis shows his wiener. <laughs> Am I having a nightmare right now? <laughs> Josh, wake up. Uh, what? You're in the Castro. Oh, it's all good. Geez. Okay. We're talking about Coco the Gorilla. Herb Terrace. <laughs> so, of course, anthropomorphism. Jeez, that was a weird sidetrack. Uh, we're all guilty of it. You know what that is? That's putting human characteristics on animals. Uh, that's when you go home and um, you see your dog or your cat and you think you know what they're feeling. Uh, and you think they have these inner lives and these emotions. I believe that they do. Sure. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but I don't care. That's what I believe. That's th- okay. So, so yes, that's, it uses common sense and intuition, and you use your own eyes and your own empathy to see, like, yes, my dog is sad right now, or no, my dog's very happy right now. You can see. It's just common sense. But if you're a skeptic, if you're a scientist, a rationalist, I'm not. you would pound your fist and say, no. Science has never shown that animals have any kind of inner subjective life like humans do. You are just projecting that onto your stupid, stupid face dog. That's right. Because because anybody who thinks like that hates dogs. (laughs) On the other side, there are people like me and scientists that believe, like, like, honestly, like we kind of believe, that they do have these inner lives. And we will look at them and say, you're all blinded by the science, like Thomas Dolby. So (laughs) what good are you? I'm on this side of the line in the sand. All right, so anthropomorphism is where, like, belief and rationalism, like, clink teeth. Yeah. Yes, it's a pretty pretty good description, if you ask me. (laughs) And I think that's another good time for a break. Yeah, you guys think so, too? Is this going well enough to release, you think? Okay, well then we have to add a second ad break just in case. So if you'll bear with us, we'll be right back. everyone. So uh, before we took our break, 
there were a bunch of mean science people <laughs> saying your dogs and your gorillas are just dumb animals. And then there are people that have human hearts <laughs> beating inside their body yeah. that say, no, you're blinded by science like Thomas Dolby. <laughs> that was a good recap. Thank you. So for some people, Penny Patterson included and other ape language researchers, they were like, you know, I don't think Herb Terrace changing his mind about his data actually amounts to proof that, that apes can't use language. I think we just haven't figured out how to demonstrate it sufficiently. So some people stayed in this field of research and risked being labeled kooks or frauds or hucksters or deluded morons or what have you. <laughs> um, and they stayed in, but they were scientists still and they wanted to stay scientific. So they had to jump through increasingly narrower uh, hoops to prove that what they were doing was not actually them corrupting the study data, basically. Yeah, they couldn't just sit face-to-face -face and <clears throat> even risk their facial expressions giving something away. So there was a researcher named Sue Savage-Rumbaugh mm -hmm. at the Yerkes Primate Center in Atlanta, and she would do her experiments wearing a welding mask. <laughs> uh, good way to hide your face, I guess. Sure. She couldn't ex uh, explain why her monkey kept signing flash dance over and over. <laughs> <laughs> she would wear a welding mask and then an off-the-shoulder off yeah. sweatshirt. <laughs> oh, man. I just saw that last year for the first time. I've never seen it. It's fantastic. Is it? Yes. Holds up? What a feeling. Okay. It's amazing. All right. <laughs> That'll make sense to me. Hey, eventually. don't boo that. So um, there was another thing that... Um, that, that that people were prompted of or uh, accused of, which was prompting, right? Like what Chuck was saying, Herb Terrace concluded that the, the, the researchers or the caregivers were kind of showing the sign right before the chimp used the sign, prompting. And so to get around accusations of prompting your subjects, uh, Sue Savage-Rombaugh and her husband, Dwayne, mm -hmm. realized that the, oh yeah, another couple. Another couple. Wow, this thing is lousy with couples. Poor Ron. So, so, so the Rumbaws, they said, well, let's just not teach them sign language then. Then you can't possibly prompt them. And they developed something called a lexicon board, which is like a trifold board of a couple hundred little boxes. And each one has a symbol in it. And the symbol represents a word. And what they did was they taught their bonobos how to use this to speak. So you press the word and the computer on the little, little box says the word for you. And so they would kind of punch out word combinations. And you can't prompt a bonobo to do that. Um, and astoundingly, they tried to teach one of their first subjects, Matata, this. Which I think means worries. I don't know. <laughs> Wouldn't it? I've never seen it. I haven't it. looked it up yet, but I think it would. Anyway, Matata was uh, pretty interesting because they, uh, they tried to teach her this and she was like, mm-mm, I am not picking this up. That's right, but it got really interesting because Matata had a son named Kanzi and Kanzi could pick it up and he actually taught mom how to use this so bonobos were exactly like human beings. <laughs> Children teaching their parents the technology. And this is after Matata got a CD-ROM at Staples called How to Use a Lexicon Board. <laughs> she ordered it online, actually. Right. <laughs> From that guy with the bald head. <laughs> but the ponytail. Don't forget the ponytail. Oh, my God. But, but the thing is about Kanzi, they never taught Kanzi. He just happened to be present while they were trying to teach Matata. And That's one right. day, he just started using the Lexicon Board, and they just lost their shit. 
They were so excited. He knew how to use a lexicon board to say, come on, mom. (laughs) (laughs) So Kanzi is actually widely regarded as one of the most intelligent apes in any of the ape language experiments, um, which he demonstrated when he wrote the movie Pay It Forward. I'm not sure I get that one. <laughs> it's so bad it was written by an ape? I, you don't read All into right. it. Just enjoy it on its face. There's a lot of good movie refs in this one. I like it. So uh, pay it forward. <laughs> that was the bad man, right? Wasn't that Spacey? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Everyone, did you, did you hear Way that? to bring my joke down, Chuck. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the spaceman. So... Uh, here, where were we? I'm so lost now. Sorry. Um, they were, uh, I'm genuinely lost. Do no. you want me to swoop Jerry, in? Jerry, cut all that out, huh? Do you want me to swoop in? Well, since you put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was some other controversy in that um, they had, and not just Penny Patterson, but other people in this field had been accused of manipulating the public over the years. Oh, yeah. And uh, sort of doing things, especially when it comes to video, uh, of kind of cooking the books a little bit. Uh, it's very easy with video, obviously. There was one sort of famous one with uh, Kanzi, the aforementioned uh, Bonobo. There's a video of Kanzi uh, putting together some sticks to light a fire and getting out a lighter, cut to perfect roaring fire, that kind of thing. And you, don't, you don't know what happened in between those moments. No, but like you don't even notice it unless you're suspicious of ape language research already because we're all so trained to just overlook cuts and edits from all the movies and TV shows that we've seen. And that, that actually isn't harmful. It doesn't, doesn't really do anything wrong, but it opens up like legitimate researchers like the Rumbaugh's to accusations of illegitimacy. Even though they're doing legitimate science, the fact that they're kind of... Um, exaggerating potentially what their yeah. subjects are capable of in the mind of the public uh, opens them up to accusations like that. Well, and even uh, Dr. Patterson would use <clears throat> words like uh, Coco has mastered sign language and stuff like that. And I, we love Coco, and Coco learned a love lot. Yep. But Coco never mastered sign language. Right. And when you use words like that, um, these sort of unscientific descriptions of what's really going on, it doesn't do anyone in the field any favors. It doesn't. And it makes linguists go like, yeah. <laughs> it drives them crazy. So uh, today, the scientific community, um, basically, this is kind of where we are now. Since the 80s, a lot of this research has dried up. Uh, they don't really work with um, apes and gorillas to teach them sign language much anymore, partially because of this, partially because of the ethics of, of taking apes and gorillas and, and putting them uh, in human uh, houses and yeah, making mobile them, homes and things like that. Making them dependent on humans, yeah, taking them away just, from their family We're units. in a different place now in the world where we don't do stuff like that as much. For sure. Thankfully. But the scientific community does rightfully acknowledge that that ape language research has shown apes are capable of using sign language of communicating on a human level with humans, which is just astounding. And we're still learning more and more. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, Like it's produced some insights into the minds of apes that we did not have before. And one of the things that was pointed to as why apes couldn't communicate, couldn't actually use language, is because they lacked a theory of mind. And a theory of mind is like, I know Chuck has different beliefs 
um, different views of the world, like we're two different people, and they long thought that apes didn't have that. Well, in 2017, somebody thought to give apes a theory of mind test that was developed for human infants. And all of a sudden, these tests started showing that, no, actually, they do have a theory of mind. And this was just a couple of years ago, so um, the field is still kind of going and developing. And it's pretty exciting that people are still researching this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, what they've kind of moved more into now, which makes sense to me, is maybe we shouldn't try and teach uh, gorillas English, even in sign language. Maybe we should just see how they communicate with each other, and maybe we can learn from that and right. see what gorilla language is all like about. Like teach ourselves their language, right. and that would give us kind of an insight into their worldview. Uh, there was yeah. also, yeah, there's also some, uh, we, we can sidestep some other controversies. Uh, the Gorilla Foundation was sued at one point, uh, not too long ago, by a couple of uh, uh, former female scientists that worked for them because, uh, remember the n nipple thing, uh, Coco had a nipple fetish. There's really no other way to say it than that. Someone just wooed that. Uh, if you look at the Robin Williams video, Coco's trying to get in that shirt and see his nipples. And uh, Dr. Patterson would show Coco her nipples over the years. And then she would request that other employees do the same, uh, both male and female. And uh, eventually some of those employees got uncomfortable with that. Uh, they took her to court and it was settled out of court. So we really don't know, you know, when things are settled out of court, what the final result is. But um, that was one of the sort of controversies that they had encountered. Right. The big nipple incident. Yes, we're serious. <laughs> Have you listened to Stuff You Should Know before? <laughs> Of course we're serious. Are they making all this up? <laughs> are they just riffing? This is amazing. Who are these guys? They're not funny enough to be comedians, but I don't think they're being truthful about their science. <laughs> that was a really good impression of that person. Sorry. <laughs> Why am I here? <laughs> Who are these people? So, uh, Dr. Patterson, was that Jerry Seinfeld? Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, Dr. Patterson... Basically, when that line was drawn in the sand on one side or the other, she said, you know what? Uh, this is my, my gorilla daughter, and I'm not going to leave her. Uh, she kind of shunned the scientific community in large part. She didn't do as many published papers. Those kind of dried up. Um, the official research still goes on, or still went on for a while, and, uh, but it just wasn't uh, like presented as science so much as She's like, screw that. I'm just going to do it on my own then. Yeah, she was like, I'm just going to go directly to the public. The scientific community can rot in hell, basically. <laughs> so her outreach um, to the public and um, her kind of uh, pushing Coco and, and just kind of sharing all things Coco, that increased while her, her kind of scientific commitment went down a little bit. But there's this documentary in 2014, I think you mentioned it before. Yeah. It is Coco, the gorilla who talks, and there is a colon in there. And then there's another colon called The Sad Story of Ron Cohn. <laughs> in parentheses yeah. beneath it. But in it, um, Penny Patterson talks about regrets, and she said that her biggest regret is that Coco never had a baby. Uh, and Coco apparently wanted a baby. She used to tell Penny a lot that she wanted a baby, and Penny really wanted a baby for Coco. Um, but it didn't happen. Uh, remember, they brought in Michael, and Michael was going to be a mate for Coco eventually, but what they didn't realize is that an incest taboo exists among gorillas and that they raised them together from too young an age. And when they finally got around to suggesting that they mate, both Coco and Michael signed, you. Yeah. <laughs> 
was not happening. It's not. Uh, they brought in another gorilla named Indume in 1991 to mate. Uh, they never produced a child either. So uh, I think Indume went back to the Cincinnati Zoo. Mm-hmm. And then uh, very sadly, and you probably all remember this, uh, not too long ago, June 19th, 2018, uh, Coco <laughs> passed away in her sleep at the age of 46 years old. And the world, or at least America for sure, mourned Coco's death in a big way. Yeah, for sure. Um, and she touched the lives of people. Like that's just, whether she knew language or not, and we're pretty sure she was a very smart gorilla who did know sign language. But whether she did or not, that ambassadorship for Earth like really did have an effect. And not just for like everyday people who actually did care about the Earth more because they knew about Coco and she had kind of transformed their view of things, but also like scientists too. Um, there was a 2014 symposium of gorilla experts, like people who are experts in the gorilla field. And they were asked at the symposium, you know, who is here because they were inspired by Coco? Like who got into this because of Coco? And like half of the people in attendance raised their hand. So she really did have this major impact on the world. Yeah, for sure. There is great, great value in that, to be sure. So uh, there was a man named Charles Wesley Hume, a British man who founded the University's Federation for Animal Welfare. And he kind of laid the stakes on this kind of science out there pretty plainly. And he said this, if I assume that animals have subjective feelings of pain, fear, hunger, and the like, and if I'm mistaken in doing so, no harm will have been done. But if I assume the contrary, when in fact animals do have such feelings, then I open the way to unlimited cruelties. Animals must have the benefit of the doubt, if indeed there be any doubt. Right. Agreed. And so, like, what Coco lives on as is this kind of litmus test, because until we can prove or disprove that, that apes or any animal does or doesn't have a subjective inner experience, um, experience. did I get that? I think so. <laughs> then it's a matter of belief. Like, you can believe whichever way you want. And, and Coco kind of pushes people to one side or the other. And when she died, um, journalists around the world wrote headlines that used words like, Coco, the master of sign language. Um, Coco, the talking gorilla. And a lot of skeptics came out and tried to correct things with their own articles, but they were like a drop in the ocean compared to all the other articles. And it seems like the world does want to believe that there is something more to animals than we you know, can prove. And perhaps that ultimately is best. And that's Coco, everybody. Good job. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.